Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to this, the Durham Book Festival. My name is Caroline Beck, and uh, this afternoon I'm joined by the novelist, playwright, and memoir writer, Gillian Slovo. She is also the daughter of the former leader of the South African Communist Party, Joe Slovo, and the journalist and political activist, Ruth First, who was murdered in 1982. She describes her work as an exploration of what happens to individuals when their lives are caught up in large political events, something which succinctly describes this book we're going to be discussing today, An Honourable Man. The book is set in the late 19th century in both London and Khartoum in the Sudan, where General Gordon holds the line in a city under deadly siege. This is a story about the dying days of the British Empire and how the old certainties of Britain's place in the world were then beginning to fragment. Um, it's also a story of personal disintegration, both of General Gordon as he faces his own death in a foreign land, and also of a British wife left at home as her husband joins the operation to rescue Gordon. But this time it's a death of the spirit and of her identity. Both are equally compelling stories interwoven with great skill and tell us much about the side of Victorian England, which has largely been either ignored or forgotten. Gillian, welcome. Um, this is a historical novel about real events which garnered lots of headlines at the time. So what was it particularly that attracted you to, to this story? And also Gordon, who is this huge character, but one who has largely dropped out of our focus, I think. I, I, came out, I came across him almost by accident. I often, when I finish one book, I don't know what I'm going to write next. And the only way I can work out what I'm going to write next is sort of by opening myself up to coincidence and, you know, things that might interest me, which I go and read about to see whether I become more interested as I read on. And when I was in this process, somebody, a friend of mine, had sent me a book which was documents from the empire, called Annals of Empire, and I was leafing through it, and I came across the section on Gordon. You know, 1884, General Charles Gordon goes to Sudan to single-handedly try and stop a jihad, which has arisen in the south of Sudan and is threatening to sweep through the whole country. And I, you know, because I had my, my primary education in South Africa, you know, Gordon was important to us. He was part of sort of the history of Africa that we, we knew about. And I became intrigued by it. Now, obviously, there were parallels um, there because there was a man from Britain who went on actually a relatively crazy expedition to, to stop a jihad. And it sort of rung contemporary um, e echoes for me. And I wanted to know a bit more. And, and the way I work with when I'm writing a book is I get an idea and I go to the library and I read about it. And if I become more interested as I read on, then maybe that's the, book, the subject for me because a book, you know, a novel takes me two or three years to write. I have to really be interested. And the more I read about Gordon, the more intrigued I grew about this man who there is a lot written about him, but but a lot of it was written around the time when he died. There's relatively little contemporary written about him because Gordon, who used to be the hero of the British Empire, whose 
whose um, beheading basically did for Gladstone. Gladstone lost office because of the fact that he hadn't rescued Gordon, who had statues all over the place, is now forgotten by history. He's a footnote. If you read any contemporary book about the empire, he is a footnote. Why is he a footnote, do you think? Because he was incredibly important and influential. Because it was such a mad expedition. It made no sense at all. There was no strategic interest for Britain in going to the Sudan. The argument that was used was that if a jihad took hold in in Sudan, it might spread to Egypt, and if it spread to Egypt, it would affect the Suez Canal, which the British had just taken over. And if it affected the Suez Canal, it would affect the one part of the empire that Britain really cared about, which was India. You know, that was, that was Victoria's own. She, if she was empress of it, and she wanted it, and she was going to keep it. And, and that was the argument for sending there. In fact, what happened is Gordon was beaten. The jihad did take over the Sudan, the Makhdi won, and it didn't spread to Egypt. None of what people feared was going to happen and was it ever going to happen, actually. So, you know, but he became, his going there became a symbol of the brave Brit you know, of, 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 the, of the sort of the identity that the British people had then about courage and not running away in the face of fire. And I think so he was symbolically important at that point. So you're, uh, you know, you're alone doing your research in the library um, and you say there's not a huge amount of, uh, about him written nowadays, but what was it about this man, the character of the man, that hooked you in? Because as you say, you've got to spend two or three years with this man, so you've got to have, he's got to have something about him that you, uh, well, that you like. Well, he is, if I'm going to be very reductive, a madman. And I'm interested in madmen. I, you know, I think there's a lot of complexity in that. I mean, this was a man who was a devout Christian. His Bible was everything. He believed literally in the Bible. He, his, his devotion to religion, you know, worried um, people, even in those times where there was tremendous evangelical devotion to Christianity. Gordon took it one stage, step further. Um, and yet he was also a, an... an, an an honourable man, a truthful man. That's why this is called an honourable man. And what interested me is why somebody like that ends up, in the name of good, ends up doing bad. Because effectively, if Gordon hadn't gone to Khartoum, Khartoum would anyway have fallen, but less people would have died in, in the process. It was such an act of hubris that he did. And I was interested in, in why this honourable man, this virtuous man, ended up doing wrong. And Gordon himself is too honest a person not to see that there was a contradiction in what he was doing. I mean, he was totally tortured. And, and part of the madman about him is one of the reasons Gordon wasn't rescued was that he kept sending out contradictory signals. One day he'd send a telegram saying, all's well, we can last forever. And the next day he'd send a telegram out saying, if you didn't come yesterday, I'd be dead. And it was, it was the nature of that complexity sort of that drew me in, you know, that I just thought... And actually, when I started and I read his diaries, and he wrote diaries throughout the siege, he was besieged for a year, and the last one um, was sent out just before he was killed. 
In the beginning, I just thought, this man is too difficult for me to get a handle on and too different for me and too crazy for me. But as time went on, I began to quite like him. He was tortured by, tortured by virtue. He was tortured by the fact that he really did believe that God knew everything and God dictated everything. And therefore, what was the point of free will? And of course, Gordon was always exercising his free will and then thinking, but why am I bothering? God will tell me what will happen. And I, I sort of, be I, I began to, to like him because n nothing he did took, he, did he take lightly. Um, and I, I was interested in him and I was interested in, you know, the expedition that went to rescue him. It was, it was Britain's um, um, first camel expedition that was um, General Wolsey was in charge of it, and General Wolsey himself was a bit of a madman and did completely the wrong thing and sent these camels on boats down the Nile in order to get to, get to Khartoum um, and um, when he should have sent them across the desert. But he had done an expedition in Canada which had been hugely successful that had gone along the Red River, and so he just decided, against all the advice given to him, to do the same thing, and, that, and that's one of the, the reasons that he, he didn't end up in time. But I really, when I read about the Camel Expedition, and there are contemporaneous accounts of what it was like to be on it, I wanted to go on it. And as a novelist, that's often what drives me to a subject, is I feel like I want to go on it. I'm intrigued to be with these soldiers, and also, I got the chance, which I absolutely loved, of writing what it was like to be in a British square and under fire. You know, it's just so visual, and it's such a big scene, and I, I'm rather fond of writing really big scenes, so it was very tempting for me to go there. Now, the things that you've been describing are obviously very big historical events, even as you're talking about them, I can sort of visualise them. But actually, this is a very interior book, isn't it? Yeah, I think it combines what often makes me as a writer interested in is what I'm interested in is what it is for ordinary people caught up in history. And I guess this is about my past and my childhood is that because of the choices that my parents made in South Africa, my life was defined by the changes in South Africa and, and always by politics, always by political debate. And in a way, I think all of our lives are just uh, defined like that, except mostly we're not aware of it. I, so I was really interested in talking not about, you know, the politics going into Gladstone and why he did or didn't want Gordon to go to Khartoum, but actually talking about the people and what people do when they find themselves in a position from which there is no escape and, and how they cope with it and... and, and who they become through that has always been something that has interested me as a novelist. Perhaps you could read a little bit from the beginning, which is, uh, which I think is the first time we come across Gordon right at the beginning of the book. Because actually him being stuck in Khartoum must have been a, a gift for you as a novelist, because then you can really get into his head. Yes. <laughs> so this is the first time in the book that you see Gordon. In Khartoum, the trumpet boys, hand-picked from the gang of urchins who haunted the Governor-General's palace in search of food, were at their stations at each corner of the palace roof. Out of pity, General Gordon always chose the puniest boys. 
And this group was so small they had to stand on boxes to see over the parapet. They were a dirty lot, their uniforms unwashed, one stank like a badger, and layers of red sand glittered on their dark faces as if they had been rolling in the desert. Still, they were brave. Even when they were being shelled, they stuck to their posts and blew their trumpets at the general's lightest nod. We are strong, they would blow in code. We are strong, as the general had trained them to. When the general lifted his gaze past the river and past the green Dura fields of Tuti Islands to the mud flats of the northern shore where they faded into desert, the blue of his eyes almost matched the blazing blue of the midday sky. He did not seem to feel the heat. He would stand in full sun for hours, waiting for Wolsey's regiment to gallop across the shimmering land and rescue him. Not, Will thought, that they would be here very soon. Instead of dispatching a small force through the desert as he should have done, Wolseley had insisted that the huge army should drag its boats over the intractable Nile cataracts, thus delaying their arrival. Just the sort of mistake a general would make, Will muttered to himself. Will was the general's unofficial Batman. His job was to go where General Gordon went and do what the general asked him to do. Now he turned away from Gordon to look past Khartoum's clustered mud houses to the adjoining town of Omdurum and beyond to the biggest concentration of enemy, the place where it was rumoured the Mukti had set up camp. It was growing faster than the others, while rising trails of dust told of many more men on their way. Not long until dusk, the general muttered. Not long until they overwhelm us, Will thought. He lifted up his eyes to the rosy bruise that was spreading under the flat blue horizon. Soon night would fall, bringing relief from the relentless heat. He smiled. The ripple of a disturbance traveled across the roof. Will's spine tingled, but he resisted the urge to duck. There had been none of the whistling that heralded an incoming shell. Something different then. He looked at the trumpet boys who usually knew what was going on. They were jumping up and down, pointing to the west. He looked back in that direction and realized that what he had taken for sunset was the beginning of a sandstorm which had already grown and was moving so fast that it would soon blot out the sky. During his year in Khartoum, Will had experienced many such storms. He knew how dangerous they could be. General, he called, General. He ran across the roof to tug Gordon's shirt sleeve. Yes? The general's glare showed that he hated to be touched. What is it? A haboob, sir. Impossible. It is, general. A sandstorm coming. Nonsense. Look, Will pointed. It's close. Can't be. Not the season. The storm was now a towering monster, hot rolling waves of, waves of sand enveloping houses and bending the highest palms. It was as if the sea, in all its breathtaking immensity, had risen up and dried to red. The air was thick of it. Was, sorry, the air was thick with it. 
enough to choke the fittest man. Nothing could stop the onward march of this highest, darkest doom, which if they did not go in, would soon engulf them. Knowing that the trumpet boys were too scared to move without an order, Will racked his brains for a way to shake the general from his trance. In desperation, he called, Charlie! Eyes blazing, the general whirled round. How dare you? Look, Will used both hands to keep the general facing west. Look! Even crazy old Charles Gordon, general in the British Army and governor general to Khartoum, could not miss the red mountain of sand that had blotted out the horizon. Huge, tidal surges of it coming fast. Thickly layered grit and clay rearing out of the desert. A wall of whirling particles towered over the native city with its clustered of crudely fashioned dwellings. It would soon slam into Khartoum with enough force to split roofs and flatten homes. Off the roof! The general roared, now. Julian, thank you. Um, in that reading, you mention uh, General Gordon's Batman, young Batman, Will. And I wondered how difficult it was to mix real characters with characters who you have conjured up out of your imagination. And I also want to ask you, was Will real? Because in the book, Gordon plucks him off the streets of London and takes him with him. But what, did, Will, did Will exist? Um, he didn't exist, but Will, like people, existed in Gordon's life. He used to rescue boys in Gravesend when he was, and he would take them in. There were a lot of indigent boys or boys whose parents couldn't look after them, and he would teach them to read and write and feed them and send them to the Merchant Navy. And Gordon actually did this wherever he went. He actually, he went, before he went to um, the Sudan, he was known as Chinese Gordon because he, he, he went to command a mercenary army um, to resist a, an, another similar kind of uprising, except this one was Christian, in China, which was an uprising against the emperor. And while he was there, he also plucked boys out and he would educate them and look after them. I mean, I guess we'd say with a modern day eye that Gordon was probably gay, but you know, being, he, he certainly had no time for women at all, but being who he was, he probably never did anything about it because it would be anathema to, to him and, and, and against the will of God, I'm sure. Um, but I put in Will because I didn't actually have confidence that I could completely um, exist in Khartoum with just Gordon, given that I knew that there was nobody there for him to talk to. He actually went with another um, British officer um, who stayed for a while and then left to go and get help and was killed on the way so that he had nobody to talk to. And I didn't quite think that I could inhabit this crazy man's mind without having some external witness. And, and it wasn't so difficult to weave them together. I mean, the thing is, Gordon was a real person, but I'm a writer of fiction. What I try and do, and I think that is the job of fiction, is to write truth, to try and sort of be as truthful to the subject as I possibly can be. But that's not the same as writing fact. You know, for me, um, I try and stick to the real historical events, and if I don't, I will acknowledge it, you know, in the back of the book to show people that I have tinkered here and there in order to fit the story. So I certainly don't tr play fast and loose with history, but nobody really knows who Gordon was. 
I mean, you know, people have said of him as a hero, people have talked about him as a drunk, people have talked about him as a murderer and a savior. So in a way, I have to find my own Gordon in the same way as I had to find my own Will. But I think Will helped me to sort of talk about both the difficult and the bits of Gordon that I began to admire. Because Will is so sensible, really. For all his youth, he's, he's almost like the adult, and, and Gordon is, is like the child, isn't he? Yes. Well, yeah, Will is sort of sensible, but also somewhat um, resentful that Gordon promised him, you know, a foreign expedition to interesting parts and ended <laughs> up having him besieged in Khartoum and about to get his head cut off. Wasn't a nice thing to do. And, you know, so that Will is struggling between... And I guess there is part of me in Will in the sense that Will is struggling between the parts of Gordon that he is fond of and the parts that he absolutely can't stand. And so that is part of what I feel about Will. But the more I write, the more I realise that every character I write is part of me, even crazy old Charles Gordon. <laughs> it comes from inside me. Now, talking about real and imagined uh, pieces in this book, one of the things that you told me before the event, which really surprised me, is that you actually invented the uh, press cuttings from the Times because the book is interspersed uh, with press cuttings from the Times, and they are pivotal to the action. Uh, and I, I just wondered why you did that, first of all, and, and also how you got the tone. You must have spent a long time in the library looking at the, at the back copies of the Times to make sure that you got the tone absolutely right. Yeah, you certainly don't, fooled me. You don't have to go to the library anymore. You can get them online. Indeed. So it's wonderful. Yeah, um, I wanted to find a way of allowing the reader to understand what was happening, because it's quite a complicated historical period, and it isn't really like ours. And I originally started by trying to read the Times, thinking about using new, um, re using real ones. But this was actually a time when newspapers were very dry, they only reported, and I didn't feel that could sustain the narrative, and I wanted to be able to use more. And I have in this book a real um, newspaperman, W.T. Stead, and I read a lot of what W.T. Stead said about Gordon, and I thought about using that, but it was such a partial view that I didn't really want to. And I also wanted to give the reader the idea of what was happening in England at the time, because Gordon went, when he went to Sudan, from being a hero of the anti-slavery movement, which was very influential. This is 1884, and it had the voice, uh, the, the ear of government, and it could push government to do things. And Gordon, in his first time in Sudan, had been there to stop the slave trade, so he was their hero. When he went back to Khartoum, the first thing he did on arriving in the city, because he needed to keep the wealthy merchants on board, he um, made a declaration that said that anybody who had slaves could keep them. And this was anathema to the anti-slavery movement in Britain. And they started basically saying, who cares about Gordon? And that's one of the reasons that the rescue um, expedition didn't start early, because there wasn't enough um, pressure on the government to do that. So I wanted to be able to find a way of doing this. And rather than putting words into people's, my characters in London's mouths, who may not be completely concerned about this, and Mary isn't a political animal, and she wouldn't really have a discussion about this. And I do find it irritating when writers have, make their characters have conversations that are quite clearly there in order to give us the reader information. I used, I made up 
um, these, these um, cuttings, um, which the publisher, we spent a lot of time finding the right typeset, Type made them look yeah. like the times. <laughs> they look very authentic. And they, it is a, a fictional correspondence between the real man, W.T. Stead, and a fictional anti-slavery man. And basically, you know, the, the having, having the conversation, and the tone was taken. I read a lot of letters in the Times, so I, you, I, I learned what kind of words people would use. And also, because I had read a lot of W.T. Stead, I could use some of his words. Although even then, I had to change them, because he spoke for a Victorian audience, and I'm speaking to a modern one, and it just wouldn't have the same impact if I had just taken his words wholesale and put them in there. And that was sort of my way of trying to, to, to allow the audience to find in a very easy way what was happening in those times. Now, you mentioned Mary, and the other side, the London side of this book, is, uh, is Mary and her uh, doctor husband, John Clark. Um, now, these are fictional, entirely fictional characters. Um, now, John Clark obviously joins the expedition to go and rescue Gordon, leaving Mary at home. And uh, Mary then falls into a crisis of sorts in the same way that Gordon does, I think, a crisis of self and identity. And that expresses itself through a growing addiction to laudanum. Um, now, tell me, because laudanum obviously was the big worm in the apple in Victorian times, but mm -hmm. how much did you know about the, the kind of general addiction of laudanum? Um, when I started, very little. Um, I was having trouble with the character of Mary because I couldn't quite work out what was driving her. And somebody suggested, in fact, my sister, who is acknowledging here, I wrote to Robin with thanks for the drugs. <laughs> Everybody now thinks I'm a complete addict. Um, she suggested, you know, maybe you could give her an addiction. So I then went to read about um, um, Victorian women's addictions. And laudanum was the obvious one just at that point. Actually, it was about to go because they'd found morphine. And, you know, that became a more serious... But, but I then went and, and read quite a lot. You know, there are a lot of books, historical books, talking about addiction and the place of laudanum. Um, and also, I read Confessions of an Opium Eater. I mean, that's one of the joys of doing a historical um, novel, is you get to have an excuse to go all sorts of places and learn all sorts of things that you would not necessarily, but in a way that sort of feeds your imagination, rather than in a way that you're just collecting um, dry stuff. And laudanum, I mean, this is the point. That 1884 is the beginning of modernity. You know, it, it is Victorian, but it is life as we know it. Um, and this is the time when doctors were becoming much more professional and pharmacists were becoming much more professional. And up till this point, it was possible for people to go anywhere and buy laudanum. And it was used to, you know, feed babies who were crying and toothache and all sorts of things. It was a cure -all. It was used like paracetamol, wasn't it? Yeah. We would use paracetamol. But, yes. but in fact, around 1860, the beginnings of 1870, because of the professionalization of the, of the industry of, of medicine and pharmacology, and because they were safeguarding their own you know, employment, they basically started regulating so that you actually couldn't anymore go to a chemist or go to a street corner and get laudanum. So this is one of the reasons why laudanum was gradually on its way out. It, had less prep, it was less easily accessible. Um, but it's also quite obviously a drug that 
you know, gave people a liberation from their own selves, at least in the beginning. The problem with it is, like all drugs, and I'm obviously an expert because I, I obviously take them, um, that, that the more you take, the more you need. And the more you need, the less it does for you what it originally did for you, and all you're doing in the end is feeding the addiction. And I was interested in the character of Mary, whose husband's going means that she just doesn't have enough in her life because she she's doesn't bored. have children. Mm -hmm. She's bored. She can't work. She's, 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 you know, women didn't really work at that time. They were beginning to, but she's not trained for anything. She hardly goes out in the streets on her own. And, um, you know, she, she doesn't know what to do with herself. And the fact that her doctor husband, when she used to get a bit anxious, would give her a bit of laudanum sort of means she starts taking more and more and ends up then having to enter into a part of London that she wouldn't have ever gone to. And what interested me about that is that as I read about, you know, this is the beginnings of the Salvation Army um, that went into the East End in order to stop people from drinking because they saw drink as the devil's um, 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 liquid that was stopping people from living a proper life and being able to feed their children and get, go to work, um, that the attitude of many of the people who really did want to help people who were poorer than them as they went into the East End was a similar kind of attitude. The way they talked about people in the East End had a similarity to the way that, that, that people like Gordon would talk about Africans. You know, it's the East End was the equivalent of darkest Africa to, to the London people. So I wanted to explore that parallel of how you regard people who are different from you and, and what they teach you and what they don't teach you. And thus, Mary, going in. Perhaps you could read us uh, another part of the book where this is the first time I think that Mary goes off into her husband's dispensing room and actually pours herself some laudanum. Right. It was terribly cold in the dispensary. She pulled down the sleeves of her brows and ruffled the line of her high collar. At least she was calmer, more capable of thought. She would go back to the library and complete her letter. She knew now what she would write. She would tell John, that's her husband, about William Stead's interview with her. It had gone, so Mr. Stead had told her awfully well. And then she would share with him her apprehension at having to appear on a public platform. That was what she had originally planned to write, but somehow she had mislaid that intention. How fortunate that she had left the library. She could go back now and write her letter. She took a step deeper into the dispensary. No, this is not what she meant to do, not every night, or at least not tonight. She was sleepy. She would write her letter, then slip easily into bed, no need. The voice that said no need was wrong. She could feel the need building, and she would address it. What harm, she thought, what harm. She was in her skin and at the same time out of her body. Seeing herself from on high, so neatly dressed, a strand of brown hair free of its ribbon and softening her forehead. She could hear her own quickened breaths and the rustle of her skirt as she went to the imposing mahogany cabinet that stood against one wall. Her mind was made up. 
had been long before she could acknowledge it. She would take a draft of laudanum, just a small one. It would help her write and it would help her sleep. Tomorrow she would forgo the pleasure if only to prove that she could. She withdrew the small key from her skirt pocket, slipped it into the lock and unlatched the top drawers, which also freed the wide set of drawers below them. She pulled open the second drawer and took out the small blocks. Another key, she had that as well, opened the box and there it was, resting snugly in its carved slot, the bottle containing the tincture of opium. It being late in the evening, she would take only a small amount, enough to help her sleep and write. She tilted the bottle this way and that. To her annoyance, the tilting produced only the faintest ripple, so faint she might have imagined it. She uncorked the stopper, a drop, but not enough. Something fluttered inside her, the familiar bodily rebellion of which, once she let it out, she might easily lose control. There was an experiment John had shown her, the kicking of a frog as a result of what he had called electrical animation, except, in this case, she had become the frog, with her animation the beginning of despair. She couldn't manage without the security of knowing there was enough laudanum should it be required. She didn't need it all the time, but if she hadn't had so much trouble composing a simple letter, if she hadn't thought to leave the library, if she wasn't so alone, if John hadn't gone, now all of this had happened, there was no going back. She would not be defeated. If the tincture was finished, she would have to make her own. She had watched him do it often enough. She knew how. From the cupboard, she drew out a bottle. She took a vial, John was so neat, everything in its rightful place, and poured a little brandy into it. Not too much, for she remembered John telling her that excess alcohol caused excess stimulation, which wouldn't do. She wanted to sleep. Carefully, she weighed out a few grains of powdered opium, then added them to the brandy. Last step, agitate. That was what John did. So that was what Mary did. She agitated so that she might stop her agitation. So Mary, from that point, descends into a sort of metaphorical hell. And one of the places that she ends up um, is in a, in a pub, I think, in the east end of London. And uh, she, one of the most arresting scenes, I think, in the book is the confrontation that Mary witnesses between the Salvation Army, who, as you said, were, were just sort of getting going by that point, and the skeletons, this grotesque group of people. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the skeletons and how you first came across them. Um, the, skeleton, the skeletons were actually called themselves a skeleton army, and they, found, they were founded in order to counter the Salvation Army, trying to get people to stop drinking. And they were probably paid by the publicans, who were very scared that they would lose their income. And what they used to do, the Salvation Army used to march in the East End, you know, with, with their band, calling people to them, trying to save souls, and also telling people not to drink. And the Skeleton Army used to come out where, where they were and throw 
rotten eggs and dead rats at them, to, and, and rats dyed blue that would, you know, sort of be putrid and would break on them and blue paint would come in order to drive um, the, the um, Salvation Army away. And I guess I came, I came across it when I was doing my research, and that is the joy of doing research um, for a novel is that I learned that early on that what you do is you can go anywhere that interests you. You don't have to know everything about your period. You just have to know what you need to know. And that one of the things I do is that I, I follow when I'm doing my research things that interest me, and that interested me. And then I became quite interested in the Salvation Army. And then I became interested in a, in a particular person who, who actually had a life outside of this book, a woman called Rebecca Jarrett, who was involved with my newspaper men, W.T. Stead, later on. And I brought her into the book as a way of giving, you know, as a way of having her meet Mary and for the two from the, these two quite desperate women, but from very different class backgrounds, trying to see if they could find a way of helping each other. Now, John Clark, who is Mary's husband, uh, he's a very interesting character because he goes off uh, on the expedition, the Camel expedition, to rescue General Gordon. Now, clearly Mary and her husband are young, they're looking for adventure, whereas John has an outlet for his desire for adventure, but Mary really doesn't, does she? Is that, is that why she takes to Laudanum? Because Laudanum really was the bored woman's friend. Yeah, it? I think it, it, was, it was very much about her boredom and her frustration that she had come from the country, that she had been quite a free young woman when she met him, and she fell in love with this man, and everything was going to be the fairy tale that she had thought it would be, but the fairy tale turned out to be you know, turn to dust because he is an ambitious young doctor who's trying to make his way, who's not only working in his um, in particular area, area, but also got rooms in Harley Street. He's trying to build his business, and it was hard for doctors then. They really had to get their customers in, so he works very long hours. And, and I think Mary's boredom is not just about boredom, but a fact it might be partly about there's something going wrong in the marriage and neither of them are really able to talk about it and they you know they don't have the equipment and they and they don't ha they don't live in the world where those things are talked about so she's just about kept under control when he's there because he can also keep a watch on her drug use but once he goes you know, the lid is taken off. But I think the same thing is for him, is the question, you know, in my mind is, why on earth did he go on this expedition? I mean, he wasn't a, 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 a member of the army. In fact, at that time, if they didn't have enough doctors, they would call, the army would call for doctors who would be given temporary status inside the army and would go on an expedition. And I think also John is finding the same difficulty settling down. And, you know, he just feels like, is this what life is? And for reasons neither of them can understand, they don't have children, which would possibly have covered up the difficulty that they're having. He goes on this uh, expedition quite reluctantly, doesn't he? He's not, uh, you know, he's not sort of gung-ho about it. And as he goes on the expedition and comes across other people, he learns more and more about himself and his limits as well. I, I think he's playing with his manhood and with his masculinity, you know, he's gone on this, um, I think, on this expedition to dare himself 
that he can do it. And then he finds himself in an army which um, certainly at its base consisted of very brave men who had fought a lot in their lives and who were used to fighting, and he never has. And, and, and he begins to worry that he isn't actually man enough to be able to do this. Because at that time, there was sort of a contradiction within the army as well. It was at the beginning also of the professionalization of the officer class. But actually, at that point, there were very many officers who had no army training, who bought their own commissions, were put in positions of power because of nepotism, and were absolutely hopeless. You know, and, and one of them, actually, I, I, it's in the book, but this is true, um, you know, there were, he was in charge of securing enough camels for the camel expedition, and he couldn't really find enough, but he used some of them to carry his champagne to war. You know, you just didn't go, I don't know what they used to call it, but you, know, you didn't go to war without your champagne and your brandy and your, you know, your dining table and your butler and etc. And But John is not with those men. John is actually with the men who really do the fighting. Um, and, and I was sort of very intrigued by reading about this time and, and reading about, you know, the, the effete officer class and these solid men swearing, but they would fight when they had to fight, and their tremendous admiration, actually, for their, for their enemy. Um, you know, for the, you know, the poem, Play, Play, and Play the Game, has been written, was written about this expedition. And if you read it with a knowledge of what happened in the Sudan, what you see is, um, you know, that Britain was quite startled by the courage of the Mahdi's troops, who felt that they were fighting for Islam, and that they would go to paradise if they died, and were much braver than anybody in the British Army ever, ever um, could have predicted. And the British Square had never been breached up till that point. And these people, without guns, breached the British Square. And the way they did it is by just climbing over the bodies of their fallen, you know, in order to get there, and overwhelming the square for a very small moment when one of the officers did a stupid thing and broke the square and, you know, made his people go out. And, the, and so they, he made a hole in the square and they took advantage and went in. They were totally decimated in the end. I mean, the, uh, the British won. But the courage that they displayed, I think, was very much in the mind of everybody who witnessed that battle. Now, you mentioned the, uh, the camel expedition earlier on. Now, you obviously had great fun with this because you can actually... I mean, can't, anyone who's ever come up against a camel will know that they are bad-tempered, smelly, very, very difficult creatures, and you can almost... You can almost smell these camels. Mm -hmm. So did you enjoy the writing of that part? I enjoyed the writing, and also I didn't enjoy the riding on the camels so much. They're quite uncomfortable. I went to the Sudan in preparation to doing this, and I went not because I could find Gordon's cartoon, which I couldn't. It was completely burned down mm -hmm. after he was killed. And the and cartoon that there is now is actually Kitchener's cartoon that was built, you know, 10 years later, but I went to sort of smell and see what that landscape feels like, and I went on a camel, and I spent quite a lot of time on a camel writing notes of what it felt like to be on, what it smelled uh, like. Actually, and how on, the it's, yeah, yeah, on the camel? Yeah, yeah, and I wouldn't advise it, <laughs> <laughs> even though mine was walking only. <laughs> now, the book, it seems to me, gives a real insight into the, the dying days of the empire, the crumbling of the empire, both at home 
and, and abroad. And this came as a big surprise to me. Did you already know that by the 1880s, the fault line, big fault lines were starting to appear, which is obviously a precursor then to what happened in the, in the big fallout in the First World War? Um, I didn't, but I soon learnt it because, you know, I read the history of that time and it soon became clear that, um, you know, e even politicians were beginning to understand that this couldn't go on. But there was also, this was a very interesting time because Gladstone himself was anti-imperialist. You know, he believed that people had the right to self-determination. That is one of the reasons why he didn't want Gordon to go to the Sudan, and the, another reason why he didn't act and send a rescue expedition, because he thought it was an unnecessary thing. But this is a time when, you know, I don't think it was clear to people then that the empire was going, because it was also height of empire with India. So, you know, it, it, was a, it was what interested me about this particular time in history, the 1880s, is times of tremendous change. When, in hindsight, it is clear what is happening, but while it's going on, it isn't. And I suppose that's what attracted to me, because I think we're living through that same kind of time, where we are aware all sorts of things that we didn't expect are happening around us, and we don't quite understand what they mean and where they're going to go. And I think this was the same kind of time. I was going to ask you, when you were writing this book, did, did you have in your mind the, the, the current wars that this country uh, and America is fighting abroad in, in the Middle East? I, I had in my mind, yes, Iraq and the decision to go into Iraq, and which I always thought was foolishly misguided on the basis that I don't think you can go into somebody else's country and it turn out well, because they never want you there. And that, I thought, was a, a, a real parallel with Gordon. But the other parallel that I saw is that, you know, that Tony Blair's kind of fervent belief that he was doing right, that he was doing good, um, you know, and, and a result of the fact that he felt that what had, had happened in Kosovo was wrong and that they hadn't rescued people and this time they had to go and do something. And yet it wasn't right, it wasn't good, it wasn't done. So I, I thought it was a good way of exploring how in the name of honor and virtue you can end up creating a worse situation than the one you're trying to counter with the best of intentions. Who is the honourable man of the title? Is it, is it uh, General Gordon or is it John Clark or is it the, the men, as you say, uh, who are fighting? It, it's Gordon with a twist. It's Gordon with a question mark, really. Um, you know, it, it, it's an ironic or meant to be an ironic title. Actually, I wanted another ironic title. I wanted to call it Virtue. And my publishers said, you can't call it virtue because everybody will think it's a prim book about virtue. <laughs> and they won that argument. And just after they won the argument and they had done this cover and everything, and we, it was an honorable man, it couldn't be changed, a book was reissued that I had never heard of called Virtue. And guess who wrote it? Marquis de Sade. <laughs> Don't tell me, prim? No. <laughs> Now, the book ends uh, with Will, this young character who, who survives, and well, he comes back. you've given it away now. <laughs> <laughs> and he comes back. And I just wondered if he was the, if he was the sort of metaphor, really, for, for the new age, because he sort of embodies the, the, the young, 
and he comes forward, and despite all his problems and his you know, poor upbringing and, and having survived Khartoum with General Gordon, he goes forward and walks back into London and survives the whole thing. It's possible. I mean, it's always tempting when you're writing a book where you leave a character without knowing what they're going to do to want to write the next one to see what they're going to do. And it takes a while to sort of get out of the first one to think, well, possibly, no, that isn't where you want to go. But, but yes, partly, I think Will represents something that was happening, a, a, a rising sort of um, voice of, of, of the formerly disenfranchised. You know, because this is also the time of suffragettism, the beginning of that, but also socialist movements and active trade unions. And Will is, is, is in a way, you know, I don't like characters to be representatives of, but he is partly, he's this down and out that was rescued by Gordon and who needs to find his own way without somebody else from another class telling him how, she, how he should be and how she, he should behave. And, you know, since, since, since we now know, he, you know, a survivor who, you know, is in a, in a way trying to do what I think many people are trying to do in life, is keep their own humanity if they can in difficult circumstances. Julian, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to throw open um, to the audience some questions, if anyone's got any questions, because if we could have the house lights up and then we might be able to see. Uh, if you want to raise your hand, if you've got any questions. Anybody want to be brave enough to ask the first question? No? We're all very quiet today. Oh, hang on, <laughs> there's somebody there. Okay, we've just got a microphone coming to you. If you could just wait until the microphone comes. Thank you. Thank you. First, I just wanted to say thank you for the image of you writing notes for your novel on a camel. That will come back to me in the future, I know. Um, the question is really about um, history and the extent to which you feel comfortable spinning away from that history, the research, what you read. I wondered whether you find a fictional character becomes a foil for a historical one. So you were talking about W.T. Stead and the fictional abolitionist, or um, obviously Gordon with Will. I've not read the novel yet, but this is what I gather. Do you think that that's how things tend to work for you? I, I don't know. I mean, I have written other books set in history where I, I wrote a book called Ice Road, which is about the siege of Leningrad, which is based on a real historical event and does have two very, very minor historical um, characters, Kirov, who was killed, and the man who killed him. But the rest of it is all fictional. I'm not sure that I feel that, that, that I'm having a, a sort of a more modern character as foil for a historical one, in the sense that I don't think when I'm writing somebody like Gordon or W.T. Stead as a historical character, I feel... I think of them in exactly the same way as I think about the ones I've made up. They're mine. They're coming from inside me. They're coming from my understanding of what they were like. And that if I try really hard to be very honest about my writing and not sort of... I mean, it's a weird thing to say, isn't it? Because fiction is about making up stories. But what I was going to say is not make up stuff without grounding. You know, to, to try and build these people from the people that they would have been and also who they are in the book. 
and not let them do things that they that that you know would would be at odds with who their characters are i think if you do that you do find a certain kind of truth i wouldn't be saying that i'm writing a historical book about about gordon but of course the great advantage of writing a novel is you can get into people's head and a historian cannot do that because not it's not in the rules um, um, so that you can explore somebody in many ways in a more rounded way. I mean, I think it's quite interesting. I also wrote a novel um, called Red Dust, which was made into a film, um, but which is about a fictional um, hearing of the real live South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And, I, I, you know, I did a lot of research on that as well, but I made up this hearing um, completely. And I think it was interesting that in that I could explore some concerns of mine about and some thoughts of mine about the Truth Commission that were about the real Truth Commission. But somehow, because you can get into people's heads, you can have a more rounded explanation, uh, exploration of it. So I could explore not only what it would feel like to be a father whose son was killed by the police in the past and whose body can't be found, I could also get into the heads of the person who might have killed them and explore that. And I think it's quite interesting that, that one of the best books about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was written was by, called A Country of My Skull by a woman called Einke Kroc, um, who was a poet, but who was, who was um, a, um, reporting on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as it was happening. And she wrote a factual book about it but she put a fictional element in it. And I think she put that fiction in there because only through fiction could she get to some of the feelings that she thought were very interesting to explore. So I think what you're always doing is you, you, you're, doing a, you're doing a mixture of, of making things up and using what really happened. But actually, what you're doing when you write a novel is you're using a real historical event to trigger your imagination. Um, and from that, the fiction flows. Have we got any other questions? Anybody else? I want to, yeah, sorry, lady at the front, if we, we could just wait till the, uh, the microphone arrives and then we can all hear. Thank you. You haven't mentioned Tom, um, who was the, uh, the Batman, if you like, to, uh, to, to John. What, why, why was he there? What, what was he representing? Yeah, just to explain, Tom. Yeah, he was. Tom was uh, the 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 equivalent of Will, I guess, to the Doctor John. Yeah, older man. He was. Yes. I I think Tom. I I'm not even, I'm not sure that Tom was necessarily representing something, but I think Tom was this person that came to me um, partly because John needed a friend, and I became interested in how he would relate to an older man who was very confident confident in what he was doing because Tom is somebody who whose life has been the army and there were people like that who hasn't been able to have a family and relationships really who has left behind what he once had and his family is the army and John is a man who's just left his wife when he shouldn't have done because she's in trouble and he should have known it 
and yet who cannot find a family within the army because he's too different, because he's too diffident, and because he's too unconfident in his own sense of what it is to be a man. And I was sort of interested in the interplay between those, between those men and whether they could become friends. And also there is a slight parallel going on because um, Tom is working class and, and, and John is middle class and Mary is middle class and Rebecca Jarrett is working class. So it is about, partly about relationships across boundaries. And in fact, Gordon and Will, same thing. There are three couples in this book. They just don't sleep with each other. <laughs> Yet. Yet. <laughs> Any other questions before we wrap up? I think that... Oh, yes, the gentleman over there. If you just wait for the microphone again. Thank you. Actors don't like working with animals and with their children and yet you put both of them in the book. Why did you have the dog? Was it the same point? Oh, you who could forget with? Frankie the dog? <laughs> the dog, the dog, because I began to feel very sorry for Will, mm. caught in Khartoum with this madman who might get him killed. And I think Will needed something to love. He needed a friend. He, he needed a friend. And, and the, dog, the dog was a good friend. And, and sort of kept Will sane. And I felt that he needed to be... It was too cruel what I was doing to him. He needed a bit of comfort somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> right, I think we'll wrap up there. Just to say that uh, we're getting our money's worth out of Gillian today because, in fact, she's going off to the School of Modern Languages and Cultures at Durham University and you're giving a talk at 6 o'clock and that's at room 145 Elvet Riverside at New Elvet if anybody would like to go it, along it's because it's my it's a it's a it's a talk although i think it's going to be sort of a conversation that is named after my mother Ruth First who actually taught in Durham um, before she died and in fact i think there's a building in durham that is called somewhere there i have is. to go and have a look called the ruth first there building is. yeah and for anyone who's interested there should be a flyer on your seats and if there if you haven't got one it's available at the back um, now ruth is actually going to be signing books Gillian. just start Gillian. you're not ruth. the first <laughs> everybody does I'm it i'm so sorry <laughs> she's going to be Gillian is going to be signing books just outside but it just remains for me uh, on behalf of the audience, to thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.